Two persistent questions surround the statewide office known as Indiana State Superintendent of Public Instruction. The first one isn't too tough, namely, does the word superintendent end with the letters ENT or ANT? The second question is a lot more difficult to answer, especially it seems in this legislative session. Should the position, whose occupant is traditionally viewed as Indiana's top education official, remain an elective office or should it become an appointed position? A move that would all but ensure that the governor and the superintendent share the same policies and the same politics. Hi, I'm John Schwannis, and on this edition of Indiana Lawmakers, we'll take a closer look at that very question. Let's start with this legislative update from WFYI public media education reporter Eric Weddle, who's covered K-12 through and higher education issues in the state since 2009. During the past two decades, some Republicans and Democrats have supported changing the superintendent of public instruction from an elected position to one appointed by the governor. Indiana is only one of 13 states that elects the position. But that issue turned bitterly partisan after the 2012 election upset win by Democrat Glenda Ritz over Republican incumbent Tony Bennett. What followed were repeated clashes between Ritz and Republican Governor Mike Pence and the Republican-appointed members of the State Board of Education. This meeting is adjourned. That should be a vote on adjournment. This meeting is adjourned. Council, does that have to be a vote on adjournment? With the Ritz and Pence drama in mind, House and Senate lawmakers have filed bills this session to make the state's schools chief an appointed position. That the, the state of Indiana and our kids in our schools are better off if we make sure that never happens again. But lawmakers from both parties are concerned that an appointment could lead to instability at the Department of Education. You're going to have these wild swings, and I think in the long run that will be more harmful to education than some kind of a stable checks and balances. You've got to fight each other over this in order to get a result done. Those concerns swayed enough in the Senate to defeat the bill, but an almost identical bipartisan House proposal was approved and sent to the Senate. A Senate rule says a bill similar in language to a defeated bill may not be heard again in that chamber. But House Speaker Brian Bosma says there are ways to get it done. Both chambers have passed important legislation that the other chamber has decisively defeated and somehow, some way, in the final recipe, the cauldron that becomes state policy at the end of the session occasionally, some of those items come back together. The Senate is expected to discuss changing the House bill so it can get a vote. For Indiana Lawmakers, I'm Eric Weddle. Thanks, Eric. Back in a moment with our roundtable discussion. Indiana Lawmakers, from the State House to your house. Purdue startup NeuroVigor, renewing hope for people with chronic diseases like MS and Parkinson's by targeting neurotoxins, helping people, changing lives. Purdue Research Foundation. Contact innovation at prf.org. Okay, let's get that first question out of the way. Superintendent is spelled with an ENT on the end. Now, if you knew that, you're doing better than a would-be superintendent who showed up at the 1992 Republican State Convention with campaign signs, banners, and buttons touting his bid for superintendent, ANT. Obviously, though, the far more significant question, and as Eric noted, the question that's creating a surprising amount of controversy this session isn't about how the position is spelled, but rather about how it should be filled. Joining me to discuss what's at stake are Republican Representative Robert Boehning of Indianapolis, longtime chairman of the House Education Committee, 
Democratic Representative Melanie Wright of Yorktown, a veteran educator and a member of the American Federation of Teachers, Indiana. Indianapolis Attorney Joel Hand, who formerly served as Director of Legislative and Governmental Affairs for the Indiana Department of Education and now lobbies for the Indiana Coalition for Public Education. And Shana Cavazos, Indianapolis-based education reporter for Chalkbeat Indiana, a nonprofit news organization devoted to chronicling K-12 education policy here in the state of Indiana. Thank you all for uh, being here for this discussion on what's become a surprisingly controversial uh, topic. Well, before we say what the, what's at stake here or what the, the superintendent may in fact uh, um, lose if, if this is in fact Superintendent McCormick's last, uh, last time around, uh, a job she just got, What's it, what is at stake here? What is the job? I mean, this is more than, than cleaning erasers uh, all day or going into ribbon cuttings at schools, is it not? Definitely. Um, and we recognize that the superintendent of public instruction is responsible for overseeing um, implementation of public policy that the General Assembly sets. Our Constitution clearly defines the General Assembly as the body that creates the policy. We sometimes defer that authority to the State Board of Education, but the department is responsible for implementation. And so um, I guess we look at it, or many of us look at it, much like you would the Secretary of Family Social Service Administration, which is over responsible for overseeing uh, social services for the state of Indiana. And it's very similar in terms of responsibility. They have the responsibility of implementing, making sure that what the state legislature puts in place is actually implemented and implemented with fidelity. And under statute, the state superintendent is a member of that very important State Board of Education, and in fact, up until this year, was automatically uh, chair. appointed chair of that Correct. of that group. That that's uh, changed uh, Correct. legislation. Last year, action. we changed it, and and um, they are a member of that body, but they are not necessarily the chair. Uh, the uh, state board did choose to elect Superintendent McCormick as chair. Same result, uh, yeah. but uh, through through different sure. uh, means. Also, this individual oversees a couple hundred employees, I presume. Uh, it's about that number in the Department of Education, mm -hmm. um, the education bureaucracy, if you will. So this is more than a title. That's why there's so much uh, fighting going on, I suppose. Is that right, Melanie? Sure, sure. So my point on this is I, you know, I was a constituent just three years ago. I'm just in my second term. And, um, you know, we've really gone through a lot of critical education changes, especially since 2010 and 2011. And so I think it's very critical to so many people out there to still be able to vote for that person because, you know, a lot of us felt just like utter hopelessness at the time when everything was going through and we thought we were really bringing our A game to education. Um, and I think that there's a lot of room to be able to have some conversation about what is working right in schools and how education reform looks um, in rural schools. You know, and how that's affecting our students differently. And I think, I think having a superintendent of public instruction who comes from the ranks, who is a Hoosier, who's voted upon, um, is very important because we feel like then um, there is a say that we could still go to the voting booth and, and make a choice. Well, now, this uh, proposal, making it an appointed position, it's not necessarily a new one. It's been sort of percolating for a couple of decades. But you used to work for Suellen Reed, I think four terms, 16 years. That was a time when there was not a lot of clamor uh, necessarily uh, f groundswell for making an, an appointed position. Why do you think, uh, what's different then and what's it from now? Well, first, John, I disagree with you. There actually were a number of times during Superintendent Reed's tenure when there were efforts made 
by both parties, honestly, to have the state superintendent be an appointed position rather than elected. I know that we went through that when Governor Bayh was governor. We went through it uh, when Governor uh, O'Bannon was governor. And so there have been these proposals. And for 166 years, the people of the state of Indiana have been allowed, and in fact, in the original 1851 Constitution, it specifically stated that the people shall elect the state superintendent of public instruction. And so for the 166 years that we've had that office thus far, it has always been directly elected by the people. We've seen the change here, I think, recently, because when we had uh, Tony Bennett as state superintendent of public instruction, he ran as kind of the hand-picked person by Governor Daniels to run for and become state superintendent of public instruction. And after four years where he was implementing policies and taking actions that were clearly not in keeping in line with what the Hoosier people wanted, they voted him out of office. And now there's been a much larger groundswell by the governors following Governor Daniels to make sure that they had that power, to usurp that power to appoint the person uh, rather than have it elected by the people. And I guess the point I was making, there wasn't sort of this, the accusations or frustrations over uh, this notion of uh, dysfunction, perhaps, that we had seen more recently. Back in those days, it maybe is just philosophically, this is a position that maybe should be aligned with the, the governor because the governor ultimately is held responsible, so that theory goes. Uh, and since education is, what, more than half of the, the state budget, uh, you cut that out of the governor's agenda, there's not a whole lot, uh, a lot left. Shana, you, you, and colleagues, you and your colleagues at Chalkbeat you know, follow a number of states. Uh, how unusual is the Indiana model now? It used to be, I think, uh, there used to be two-thirds or almost three-fourths of superintendents across the country were chosen through direct election. And then that's, of course, been sort of dwindling over the years. So we are something of an outlier now, is that right? Yeah. Um, it's certainly not as common as it, as it once was, um, and I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but um, you know, it is a, a smaller fraction of states that do elect their state school's chief. Um, you know, and then there are a few different. 13, I yeah, I was going to uh, say fourteen, but I think it's you know shifted a little bit in the past few years. Um, and there are a few different models. You know, there are ones where they are directly elected. There's ones where the governor appoints the superintendent, and then there are others where the state board of education, whether it has been elected or appointed, then appoints or elects among its members a superintendent. So there are a few different ways that states are handling it. Um, and, and I do think that has shifted, though. I think that Oregon even has, uh, it, talk about an outlier, I think the, the Board of uh, Investment or, or something picks it in Oregon, but hey, maybe they do things differently there. But you're right, I, there are <coughs> lots of different models, some where there's direct appointment. I think actually direct gubernatorial appointment, though, is still a, would be a minority of states at 16, I, I think, so we would we'd go into that camp. Well, how about this notion? It's been, we've had a system for 166 years, as, as Joel mentioned, uh, all the way back to, trivia question, who was the first? I just told Larry. You. William Larrabee, but we Larrabee. don't wait. All right, close. teacher, we won't hold you on that. <laughs> he served from 1852 to 1854. Why fix it? Why change it now? Is it because of uh, some of the things that, that Joel just mentioned? Well, I, I mean, first off, I've been in the General Assembly for several years, and I will tell you that um, we eliminate the clerk of courts. The clerk of courts was elected as a position over, I assume, probably the same period of time. Um, had a responsibility of overseeing the courts or, you know, serving the courts. Um, that position was eliminated and, and actually we eliminated it totally as opposed to having it elected. I think that as you look at um, the, the role of the superintendent is why I think it's important to have it appointed. 
um, that being the person that's supposed to be responsible for implementing public policy, as opposed to, um, I mean, some would argue, and, and even Representative Wright in her remarks talked about how people wanted to have some relief from it, but the General Assembly is the one that creates the policy. The superintendent is supposed to implement. If they're implementing with fidelity and doing what the General Assembly says, I mean, really that role is is diminished in terms of having any type of responsibility as far as that's concerned. Uh, so I, I do believe appointed, and, and even when Joel references back um, Dr. Reed's term, um, I, I do remember over, over those many years that uh, we had Democrat governors in that period of time, and frankly, there was friction. It probably wasn't as public as, as it has been over the last uh, several years, but it definitely was uh, a very definitely a, a friction. Um, there's a gentleman who uh, I have a lot of respect for recently passed away, Stan Jones, who was very involved and kind of worked uh, for Governor Bai and some for Governor Bannon as well, kind of behind the scenes to kind of help facilitate. And, you know, I, I think I've, I've talked to several vendors of the state who actually had more, who were vendors to the department, had more reaction, relationships with him than they did with Dr. Reed. So um, there's no question that over time, I think the, the, the public looks to the governor. They elect the governor based on his agenda, his or her agenda, and education being a primary part of the state's role. Obviously, they have uh, policy uh, platforms. Both the Republican and Democrat Party over the last three decades in, in different forms have advocated that we go to appoint it just because I think they, they all believe that we're holding the chief officer of the state, the governor, really responsible for it, and it makes sense that he has the power, he or she has the power to have a direct... Even though four years ago when Democrat Glenda Ritz, the only Democrat who's held that office for a long time, as we you noted off air, she got more votes uh, in that election than, than Mike Pence did. So, I mean, if you want to say who's being held responsible, I guess you could make the argument that the top vote-getter in that... I would argue, and I think Sue Ellen Reed would tell you she was many times top vote-getter, too, but they're far enough down ticket that a lot of times people don't really know exactly what the platform... And I don't... I think uh, Superintendent Ritz was elected... Um, I don't know if it's a reflection exactly of, of the policy we're implementing because at the same time, the General Assembly's majority, that Republican majority, actually increased in both houses. Um, but I think it was more, um, and, and I love Tony Bennett, but I think it was more about the way Tony had um, reacted and how he moved forward the, the agenda that was set. So I think it was more of a reactionary type of vote. Now, you, you compared this position to the clerk of the courts, and I've heard others make the same argument. Uh, that, of course, changed in 2004, I believe it was. But now, you talk, uh, Representative Banning, about policy implementation, and I guess you, one could argue that the clerk of the courts had no duties in that regard. They were simply Nor does uh, the administ administrative functions. I mean, basically carrying out, the, overseeing the filing of documents and so forth. Do you think it's a fair comparison to say, hey, this we did, we changed it for the clerk of the courts. This is the same sort of uh, uh, proposition. Well, I think I think we're in a unique setting, and I think we're seeing it at the national level too, because we're leading the the country in many of these initiatives right now, and so it's a real paradigm shift in education. And before, when shifts in education would come through, it would kind of come through one side of the country, and then we would try these different methodologies and things. This is really an entire thought process on how schools should be, you know, dealt with and handled and run and. Um, and I feel like if we move a little bit more back to local control, because our, super, our local superintendents are hired because of their visionary aspects, and then they in turn hired their building um, 
they're building principles based on their instructional leadership, and then they in turn help form teacher leaders and help get the curriculum off the ground. And I think by getting more input from all of those sides through the state superintendent of public instruction, we'll get back to more of a grassroots and what's working best for kids. Um, because I do think that policy looks differently in the field when you're in it um, than what it does at the state house. I, that's what I find from course, being a practicing teacher. Of course, Jennifer McCormick, the superintendent, she was superintendent at the state level, was in Yorktown yes. schools where you taught. So for you, it was all local anyway. Well, I mean, you just get the boss bumped up to uh, another uh, <laughs> rung up the ladder. I actually live in Yorktown, but I teach in Daleville. But yeah, she's always been a very good friend. My superintendent, Paul Garrison, at Daleville. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned one of the objections that came up when this, uh, the, the surprise, what many people thought was a surprise vote in, uh, on the floor of the Senate in this bill was turned back, uh, 179, Senate Bill 179. And yes, this notion that you're disenfranchising uh, Hoosiers was one argument. Another one had to do with qualifications. There had been or is now an ex existing statute, a two-year provision, I believe, that a residency requirement, and this, would, this bill would have done away with that. So a lot of people were saying, we need to build some qualifications, minimum qualifications, into it. Is that... Uh, warranted, I mean, that type of approach? And does that, in your eyes, solve one of the, uh, the obstacles here to getting it enacted? Well, one of the problems that we have with the bills that were proposed this year, whether we're talking about House Bill 1005 or Senate Bill 179, is that you're taking the vote away from the people. And the people of the state of Indiana, for 166 years, have always chosen an educator to head the state Superintendent, so you see that as a bigger concern, because we also heard from, from members of the Senate who said we're really hung up on the notion of, of minimum qualifications. But to you, it's well, a matter of disenfranchisement. I, I think that that is the primary issue, is disenfranchisement. The secondary issue is if you're going to take that power away from the voters who have always sided on having an educator be the state superintendent of public instruction, then there should be some minimum qualifications put in there, rather than having it be open to just anyone from any state who can come in and be state superintendent and be truly a, a political hack, a political appointee. Now, we're seeing the same sort of thing play out on the national stage. We've heard many people say that, oh, if we move this out of being an elected position, it's, not, it's going to make it less political. Well, Betsy DeVos's nomination has been everything political. You can't say that that's non-political. And here she comes in to run the U.S. Department of Education, having no prior experience as a classroom teacher, a school administrator, anything of that ilk. And it's been a very political process throughout her appointment and what I anticipate will be her entire tenure as Secretary of Education. Shane, do you think these concerns that were voiced on the floor of the Senate can be overcome? Of course, there's this plot twist where uh, because the bill was defeated by a majority in the Senate, uh, Senate rules would suggest that uh, no legislation that's identical in nature or similarly worded can be considered. So I guess that calls for a tweaking, which perhaps might involve qualifications or some sort of residency requirement. Do you see that uh, looming on the horizon? Um, well, I know that uh when Senate President David Long addressed, you know, reporters kind of shortly after that vote had taken place, he um, he mentioned that those could be some ways that House Bill 1005 could be adjusted to, you know, make it fit the rules so it could come back to the again, Senate. It is a very, it, at least as it was written by Speaker Bosman, Brian Bosman and others, it was effectively the same bill. Right. And so one thing that could change, and he mentioned a few different options, one would be changing the date, um, I think, 
in the Senate bill originally said the appointment wouldn't take place until 2025, but it was amended to be 2021, which matches the House bill. And so if that date were to be changed again, um, that could potentially make some headway. Um, the bringing back in the qualification for residency could also address that. And those are both things that um, Senator Long thought could make the bill, um, you know, just quite honestly, you know, fit the rules. But you know, who, who knows what might come into play? We're only halfway through. And there are only uh, rules. I mean, we've all seen how uh, t rules can be broken a little bit. And remember, there is that notion that bills have to be of only one subject matter, and I think that gets bent from, uh, from time to time. <laughs> time to Do you see this, uh, Representative Bannon, getting resolved uh, to your satisfaction? And how significant? You're dealing in your committee, uh, and, and you've been dealing for several years with school voucher initiatives, with, uh, you know, replacing ISTEP with uh, expanding pre-kindergarten uh, instruction for, for the youngest uh, children in our state. Is this, where does this stack up? I mean, is this something to go to the mat for? Well, obviously the House has already passed it, so it's not really a decision we're going to have to grapple with directly. It's going to oh, be but, something the Senate. I mean, in, well, eventually it, we will, no question. I, I personally believe that education is too high a priority. We need to take politics out of it to a degree. And if you look at the history even of the superintendent of public instruction, um, Harold Nagley, for instance, was prosecuted uh, for uh, post-employment. Yeah. yeah, and then H. Dean Evans was uh, appointed to replace his term. Um, there's been allegations, uh, even over in recent times, uh, Superintendent Bennett. There was allegations never uh, prosecuted, never found. Uh, that they were uh, actually appropriate. But even Superintendent Ritz was accused of uh, raising money during a period of time when she was not supposed to, according to her campaign finance report. I think the, the goal would be to try to take all the politics out of it and let, let the governor be the leader on it. And um, your question, though, whether we're going to you know, go to the mat on it, um, I think it is a priority, House Bill 1005. And the governor made it one of his so-called pillars, yes. which I guess puts a little pressure exactly. on Republicans. I think Republicans House and Republicans House and... The governor both are very committed to it. How realistic anybody is it to think that politics would be taken out of a subject that, again, constitutes more than 50% of, of state spending in any given biennium? Is that's, that that's totally unrealistic. I mean, if you look at any statewide elected official office, or for that matter, even these agency heads, they're very political. If you have an appointed position, then these are political appointees who are put there by a governor who wants to carry out a specific agenda. So whether it's an elected position or it's appointed by an elected official like a governor, it's still going to be highly political and highly charged. These issues and allegations of you know, wrongdoing, well, that can happen whether it's an appointed position or an elected position. That's not going to matter uh, in terms of whether or not you have a bad apple in there, like a Harold Nagley type, uh, who's going to abuse the position of power. That happens in appointed positions, too. The difference would be, though, I would argue, is you wouldn't be uh, politically looking at the next election. What is expedient for the next election? That person is responsible for implementation. And hopefully, I mean, the uh, Secretary of Family Social Service Administration is hardly, I, I mean, you may say they're political because they're politically appointed, but I don't see John Warner, for instance, was very political in terms of some of his decisions. He, did, he may be aligned directly with the governor, but it wasn't like he was concerned about the next election out there actively campaigning for. I think that's what I'm trying to take out of that. As stakes are raised in the classroom and with school corporations with letter grades and accountability, people will feel like they need to have a vote in his state superintendent. And quickly, the flip side of the question I just asked uh, Representative Banning, uh, how willing is your caucus to make this, you know, draw a line in the sand, or at least as much of a line as 
a party can win it, a caucus can win it, doesn't have uh, even the, the ability to uh, stop action with uh, the de deprivation of a quorum. I, I think our caucus point of view right now is to be able to give feedback on what the opposing views would be and what the consensus is out in, um, among our constituents. And John, I would also bring to that point, though, that it was a bipartisan vote in the House. It was not a partisan vote. So there were several Democrats that actually voted for the bill. So the majority did not, but it was a bipartisan vote. And Shana, you get the last word. Does the governor sign something uh, or get something at least on his desk uh, on this topic uh, before the session's done? Yeah, probably do. It um, didn't happen in 2015. I mean, I could see it continuing to be an issue for the next few years, but... I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I think we're going to be quite there yet this year. All right. Well, the ghost of, uh, <laughs> the ghost of William Larrabee are, can, uh, can, I guess, maybe rest easy if your prediction is correct. Thank you all for being here for this discussion. I'm sure we'll be talking about it more as the session progresses. Again, my guests have been Republican Representative Robert Banning of Indianapolis, Democratic Representative Melanie Wright of Yorktown, Joel Hand of the Indiana Coalition for Public Education, and Sheena Cavazos of Chalkbeat, Indiana. Some gun-related bills are making their way through the legislature. Are lawmakers hitting the bullseye or shooting themselves in the foot? On the next Indiana Lawmakers. And time now for our weekly conversation with Ed Feigenbaum, publisher of the newsletter Indiana Legislative Insight, and germane to this week's topic, its sister publication, Indiana Education Insight. Well, since you have that newsletter, you're uniquely qualified to tell us how this debate is going to shake out. Well, that, that brings up our third newsletter, Indiana Gaming Insight, because I'll take a bet and shameless. Call, yeah. Shameless. I think if, if you had to wager on this one, you, you'd say that it would pass. Um, but it, it'll pass, I think, in the, the form more like the House bill. And, and you heard everybody talk about in the roundtable the, the question about qualifications and residency. I think you're going to see some of that added back in there. Um, you and I are, are old enough to remember that. Um, when Evan Bayh was governor, he, he tended to bring in a lot of people from the outside, and we haven't seen that um, to as great an extent recently, but even his, his education policy advisor came in from Bill Clinton's Arkansas. He was a, a Clinton guy. And since then, the Republican governors that followed, and Frank O'Bannon, you know, after Evan Bayh, um, have not tended to do a lot of that. But even Governor Daniels brought in Mark Everson, guy who had been with the Red Cross and, and the... Uh, Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service to run two different state departments. And so we're seeing a little bit of that. There's a little bit of precedent for bringing in people from, from other states. And Everson even ran for president. And, and, and how much work does the governor have to do to, to make this come to fruition? You know, it was one of his pillars of his legislative agenda. New governor wants to come out, be able to declare victory, no doubt, at the end of the session. How much political capital does he expend? I think there was a, a little bit of surprise on the part of, of some of the advocates in the Senate that the governor didn't really make a, a lobbying push of sorts on this. I think they expected a little bit more, particularly as, as it became clear that it was going to be a, a whole lot closer than people expected. Um, the governor, I think, understands now that, that he can't just uh, sit back and if this is, is really something that he wants, expect it just to happen. And it becomes more difficult now for passage given that it's already been defeated in the Senate and, and now it, it's become clear what has to happen to it in terms of, of the qualifications, the riders added to it in order for it to now be um, successful in the Senate. And those changes would be sufficient in all likelihood 
to dodge or circumvent the Senate rule. That oh, would... ab absolutely. When you've, you've got the Senate president pro tem, who's you know, essentially the author of the, the bill, the guy who really wants to see this thing through, it's, it will happen. That's not going to be a, a problem. All right, Ed, thanks as always for your insight. Appreciate it. See you next week. For more information, episode streams, and other extra content, visit us on the web at wfyi.org lawmakers. You can access live streaming coverage of the General Assembly on the Internet as well. And remember, you can get our show on demand from Xfinity. Well, that concludes another edition of Indiana Lawmakers. I'm John Schwannis, and on behalf of WFYI Public Media, Indiana's other public broadcasting stations, and my colleagues Ed Feigenbaum and Eric Weddle, I thank you for joining us, and I invite you to visit WFYI.org for more statehouse coverage. Until next week, take care. Purdue researchers are advancing manufacturing industries by developing 3D additive methods, leading through innovation and job creation. Purdue Research Foundation. Contact innovation at prf.org.